Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 1 through 9, and also 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 10 to 16. I'll give you a little bit moment to uh, turn to your Bibles, um, and you'll see it actually um, uh, on my right, your left. Uh, and I encourage you guys to read along uh, quietly, um, whether on your phones or, or on the screen uh, as I read it out loud. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife? for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Moving on to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not, not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, um, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. Um, today's morning, Crossbridge. Dr. Hollinger, he was the former president of Gordon-Conwell. And in his ethics classes, he would often make a helpful distinction between different ways to talk about difficult topics. So he gave three different ways. He listed them out. So the first one is Christian ethics. And when we talk about Christian ethics, we're dealing with the moral ideal, God's design, what God calls us to do and what he calls us to be. We're talking about what is objectively, what is universally right and wrong. And these ethics, it's rooted in our faith. 
in our Christian worldview. It flows out of a relationship with God. And Christian ethics is often a high calling. It's a, it's a higher standard than what we might expect from our wider secular culture. The second way is pastoral care or Christian care because it shouldn't just be the pastors doing the caring, right? This is that part of the conversation where our focus then is on bringing love, empathy, and compassion, on caring for people, particularly when that moral ideal has been broken or hasn't been achieved or when people are struggling with it. The focus then is on showing grace to them. And lastly, we could talk about the difficult topic from the vantage point of public policy. So when it comes to public policy, you know, we're talking about an individual's rights. And it's also, according to Dr. Hollinger, sometimes you would say this, it's the ethical minimum of a society. So for example, right, murder is against the law. When you murder someone, typically you're arrested and you have to face some sort of punishment. At the same time, for us as Christians, Jesus in the Beatitudes, he's declaring his kingdom ethic. He says in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, given that we listen to Jesus' words, does this mean that if I am angry with my friend or my family, I should be arrested and then serve a life sentence? No. I mean, the nature of the sin might be the same, but you don't imprison people in America for simply being angry. So there's these three distinctions, Christian ethics, Christian care, public policy. But sometimes we conflate them together, right? We elevate Christian care so much so that it becomes the ethic. Or or sometimes we're talking to others. And though we're talking about the same overarching difficult topic, We're going at it from different angles. So one of us is so focused about that topic, but we're talking about the ethics, what is right and wrong about it. Another is talking about the public policy, what is right and wrong in the public square. And still another is talking about the care component, saying things like, well, it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. We have to care for these people. And so it might seem like we're talking about the same thing, but we might not be. And disagreement ensues, conflict ensues. And I bring this up this morning because we're tackling a fairly difficult topic in our sermon series this morning. Divorce. It's something that I'm sure many, maybe all of us perhaps, have been impacted by in one way or another. Maybe someone close to us has gone through a divorce friend, a family member, a mentor, someone you respect, or maybe we have gone through one ourselves. And what makes it difficult in part, you know, especially as we're trying to preach on a topic like this, is that divorce always involves real people 
in real life dealing with very real and raw situations. And so sometimes there's that tension between the first two distinctions. There's Christian ethics, the ethics of divorce, and then there's Christian care. And so we're looking to scripture to see what the Lord says about divorce. That's, I think, the title of the sermon, The Lord's Teaching on Divorce. And at the same time, we can't help but think about the people in our lives that this part of scripture impacts. Maybe more so than when we talk about other parts of scripture. We cannot completely divorce discussion over the ethics of divorce from the care of those who are facing it or have faced it. It's it's really hard to talk about one without addressing the other. And so this morning, we will look to scripture about what God has to say about divorce. At the same time, we ask, given that, you know, what difference does it make? What now? We'll spend a little bit of time to see how it applies to us. But to be honest, that Christian care component, we can talk about it in a sermon, but really we need to be living that out right now in our church, in Crossbridge, in our church community, in our small groups. If you have your Bibles at home, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in these first few verses. But we'll also reference a a couple of other passages as well. So, you know, have your Bibles, have your phones. You can uh, flip to it when you need to, just to follow along. Our passage begins with Jesus having just finished some parables. And now the Pharisees are coming to test him. They ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You see, what they're asking, if you really pay attention, what they're asking is not whether divorce is right or wrong. They actually already assume divorce is right. They're asking, what are now the justifiable grounds for divorce? In the back of their minds, they're looking to the law of Moses. And so they they know their scripture. They're looking at a passage like Deuteronomy 24, where it mentions divorce. There, we can read, Moses writes, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and and then she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife. And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that, that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Back then, it was pretty common for a man to have the right to divorce his wife, but not the other way around. In some circumstances, the the wife could petition the court, but at the end of the day, it would still be the court who would direct the husband to divorce her. 
And so the, the actual divorcing was still done by the husband. And so when we, we take the Pharisees into account, the question for these Pharisees, these men, is, is not necessarily, can we divorce? But when can we divorce? There were two schools of thought back then. The school of Shammai took a bit more of a narrow de definition when defining the word indecency in Deuteronomy 24. They're trying to interpret it. And they argue that adultery was the only ground that justified divorce. Now, on the other hand, the school of Hillel took a much more lenient approach. They interpreted the words much more liberally, arguing that even if a wife spoiled her husband's dinner, even if, if a wife you know, burnt the soup or messed up the soup or cooking or anything, it was cause for indecency and therefore justified grounds for divorce. Actually, one of the, the, the rabbis interpreted the words, if she finds no favor in his eyes, to mean that if he found someone prettier, it was again, justified grounds for divorce. And so both schools had different answers to this question of divorce, and the Pharisees knew this. But what's interesting is that when you look at it, they were the same in that divorce was required, even encouraged, whenever there were grounds, whatever those grounds might be. And so the Pharisees, they come to test Jesus. Who is Jesus going to side with? Because either way, he's, he is going to give an answer that is going to be unsatisfactory for some group of people. We're going we're gonna to catch him. Jesus, however, being Jesus, his response, he always, he cuts right through their assumptions. And so the Pharisees are asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? By asking, is it lawful, they're appealing to a provision in the law of Moses. By specifying for any cause, they're not asking, again, they're not asking, can we divorce? But when can we divorce? Jesus instead responds like this, verses uh, 4 to 6. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Put simply, this is the, the main idea that Jesus is driving home today for us. God's design for marriage is not for it to end in divorce. Jesus makes an appeal to the creation account. That is, he goes all the way back to the origin to, to make the point that God designs and he defines marriage. Jesus is referring back to the Genesis account, chapter 127 and 224. And, and so in the beginning, God created man and woman in his image. And he designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. And, and by going that far back, the point is that this creation ordinance is still in effect then. It's still in effect today. 
It doesn't matter that sin had entered into the world shortly after that. And we live in a broken world with broken relationship. God's design, his intent for marriage still stands. And this marital union is not a, is not a casual one. Jesus is citing Genesis. He's talking about a whole change of status. It is a something miraculous, supernatural is happening here. It is a new relationship, a union like no other. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You're talking about two people who leave their families to start a new one. Two people who change their allegiances from their parents to each other. Two bodies coming together to be one flesh. That is as close as you can get. It is a relationship that is so different from any other relationship that you might have on earth. Think about that one piece of flesh, right? All the muscle fibers and tendons and everything that is connected together. Formed together. Now to tear that apart. This is what divorce does to that one flesh union. Jesus' point is that marriage is lifelong and it's difficult, right? But there's a permanency to the marital union on earth. And so Jesus gives the theological basis for marriage. He goes back to creation. And now verse 6, he's talking about the implication. All right, now what happens? Okay, God created them from the beginning and made them male and female. And they became one flesh. So what? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore... God has joined together, let not man separate. That's to say that because God made marriage, only God can break marriage. At the end of the verse, Jesus says, let not man separate. It's in the form of a command. That is, do not separate what God has joined together. We, as God's creation, do not have the authority to undo what God has put together. This is why in Christian weddings, particularly the ones in our church, this is at my wedding and the the weddings I officiate, uh, we say this sometimes at the end of the wedding service. We might vary on where it goes and on the placement, but it'll go something like this, perhaps. We pronounce the couple, husband and wife, in the name of the father, Son and the Holy Spirit. And then, and then we say, what God has joined together, no one is permitted to separate. And we tell them, you know, you may now kiss, right? Then they kiss. Now, look, realistically, I, I don't expect many people to pick up on that verse reference because really in that moment, no one's caring about that verse reference. Everyone's really waiting for that couple to kiss, for that, you know, to take the picture and everything. But that verse is there. So God's design for marriage is not for it to end in divorce. That's verses three to six. Now, at this point, you might be thinking what the Pharisees are thinking, right? If if that's the case, if God is so categorically opposed to divorce, then why does scripture, why does Moses in Deuteronomy talk about the man giving a certificate of divorce and sending the wife away? And add to that, are there really no exceptions? Is it that black and white? And so the Pharisees ask and challenge Jesus, and Jesus responds with the second half of our passage. 
verses 7 to 9. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. When we consider these verses, verses 7 to 9, in light of Jesus' emphasis in verses 3 to 6, I think the point is this. Yes, there, there is some exceptions. But look, the right to do something is not always the right thing to do. Again, the Pharisees had a a total misunderstanding. Before they were asking, when can we divorce instead of can we divorce? And now they're saying Moses commanded divorce, but Jesus actually points out, have you read scripture? Like divorce was permitted, but not commanded. It's a subtle change, but a crucial one because the right to do something is not always the right thing to do. The Pharisees says, Uh, Moses commanded divorce. Jesus says, no, you're wrong. Moses allowed for it. When we go back to Deuteronomy 24 and we read it again, the divorce is already happening. When such and such a thing happens, what happens is Moses is regulating it. He's providing stipulations. Actually, in one case, probably protect the woman. The reason Jesus says Moses allowed for divorce is because of your hardness of heart. See, back then, particularly in a patriarchal society, the women might find themselves in a difficult position. And so one scholar gives this example. You might find that a husband rejects his wife and puts her out of his house. Now, if she tried to marry another man, which would have been pretty likely because that's the way it happened back then, then that husband could still claim that she was still his wife. Legally, there was nothing she could do about it. Moses is coming in and trying to provide some measure of protection because of their hardness of heart. Until the husband gave the wife a certificate of divorce, she was still his wife. That meant is he owed her the duty that any husband owed his wife. Back then, he had to provide for her. He had to protect her. He can't just put her out. Making the certificate of divorce available meant that the wife would then be free to marry and that the former husband would have no claim on her. And so this is actually, this was a concession that was made because of the hard hearts of men. But as Jesus points out from the beginning, it was not so. The the right to do something, it's not always the right thing to do. This was not God's design for marriage, even if he allowed it, even if a concession was made. Jesus is putting forth that kingdom ethic of lifelong marriage and covenant commitment, of a way that exemplifies the gospel, the relationship between, that pictures the relationship between Christ and the church. He's putting forth a a move, a focus towards reconciliation and restoration instead of divorce. Now, there may be some exceptions, and Jesus does give one in this passage, 
But, but the hope, the goal is always, always towards reconciliation and restoration in light of the gospel, in light of what God has done for us. The church who has repeatedly rebelled against him and cheated on him, and yet he shows that grace and mercy towards us. It's, it's towards rebuilding the marriage, not tearing it apart. Now, look, even though God's design for marriage is not for it to end in divorce, there are typically two exceptions given in Scripture. Adultery and abandonment. And so in verse 9, it says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Here, sexual immorality is given as a condition where the offended party has the right to divorce even as they may not want to. Now, another allowance comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 13. And so Paul writes there, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So he's talking about the, a situation that, that Jesus has addressed, Matthew 19, perhaps. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, again, address, Paul is now addressing a situation that, that Jesus didn't necessarily address because it wasn't as prevalent. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So Paul is distinguishing between a situation that Jesus has addressed and one that he has not. But both are scripture. Both are inspired. Both are authoritative. He points out that Jesus has given this charge. The, the wife should not separate from her husband. The, wife, the husband should not divorce his wife. But then what about a case where someone is married to an unbeliever? You know, it's quite possible, especially back then, that, you know, the husband or the wife becomes a Christian, but the other one does not. And th this is happening after they've already been married. And Paul is instructing them not to seek a divorce just because you became a Christian and your spouse is still a non-believer. But if your unbelieving spouse wants to separate, then don't force them to say, let it be so. You know, maybe the spouse thinks, well, you know, you're not the same anymore. You're not who I married. Can't go along with this whole Jesus ride. You're no fun anymore. I want a divorce. Then Paul says that that Christian spouse can let them go. So adultery and abandonment. What about abuse though? Because that oftentimes comes up. Many pastors and scholars, and I would probably put myself in this group, that find that abuse, I would argue that abuse can be a form of abandonment. Abandonment does not necessarily need to be physical abandonment, like I, I left the house and never came back again. With abuse and environment is created, maybe, where the spouse is continually oppressed. Not just a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing situation, environment, and maybe it's the offended spouse that needs to leave. So again, there are some exceptions made, but, but again, it's, it's complicated. 
we are to read verses 7 to 9 in light of verses 3 to 6. It doesn't necessarily mean that the first time anything bad happens, you, you just give up. The hope for us as Christians is always towards reconciliation, towards restoration. And I think that's particularly important when we consider the new covenant. So yes, yes, there, there was the law of Moses, which made a concession due to the hard-heartedness. But Jesus has come now. The Spirit has come. He has given us new hearts, hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. And this is where the, the gospel might shine through into something as difficult and messy and hard as divorce. In verse 1, Jesus had just finished these sayings. What came right before? What were these sayings? If you scroll up or flip back, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now that's quite amazing, right? Think about that. You juxtapose Jesus' teaching on divorce with his teaching on forgiveness right next to each other. How can we ever live up to God's design for marriage, to Jesus' kingdom ethic when it comes to marriage and divorce? How, how can we do that when our relationships, our marriages might seem so, so broken? In the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus is describing a servant who owes his master a lifetime of fortune. And the master, in his grace and mercy, forgives the servant his debt. Debt. And uh, immediately, that same servant then goes to one of his fellow servants who owes him not even a fraction of what was owed the master. And yet that same servant demands payment immediately. And when payment couldn't be made, he put his fellow servant in prison. The master finds out and is livid and judges him and says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you. In the gospel, we see any wrongs done to us pale in comparison to the wrongs we have done to God. And if we can grasp the depths of God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness to us in light of our own sin, perhaps it might move us to a place where we can extend that same grace and forgiveness to others, even our spouses, because that's the gospel. The gospel recognizes that we're not on the same level as God. We're on the same level as those around us, as our spouse. So God's design for marriage is not for it to end in divorce. And even with exceptions, in light of God's design, sometimes the right to do something, particularly in our secular pluralistic society, is not always the right thing to do. We always want to pursue reconciliation. Now, Christians, maybe people in our own church, like I take a step back and I always wonder, we, we seem to love to talk about and have long intellectual debates over predestination or Calvinism and Arminianism or comp complementarianism or egalitarianism, all these different things. But you know, I don't see us talking about divorce with the same energy or fervor as these topics. And maybe that's for a good thing because, you know, you know probably because that, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, divorce is difficult. It's personal. It always involves real people in real life dealing with very real and raw situations. It's not something that we can just carelessly 
dissect as a topic. What does this mean for us, though, as Crossbridge, for CBCGB? First, if you are in the midst of hardships with your marriage, I urge you to seek godly counsel. Even seek professional help. It's not too late. Pursue reconciliation. But look, the, the church, us, we ought to be walking there alongside you, you both. Pastors and elders ought to be there guiding you. And small groups and fellowships too. I mean, is this not what God calls us to do in Christian community? To bear one another's burdens. To encourage one another. To lean on one another. Our, our small groups are not just here to do a Bible study together every week. Our small groups are not just here to just pray for the same superficial two or three things every week. Our small groups are, are here to take responsibility for each other to share our lives deeply with one another, to lift one another up, to bear one another's burdens. One last word. Sometimes divorce still happens. If you are divorced for an unbiblical reason, as you look to scripture and the spirit is convicting you, I, I urge you to repent Rely and trust in the gospel of Christ for hope. And if you are, you know, maybe remarried after such a type of divorce, scripture, scripture nowhere indicates that we break one covenant marriage because we broke a former one. But scripture does encourage us to magnify Christ in our current marriage. And look, if you are, if you are divorced for a biblical reason, there's no shame. Please do not believe the lies that God cannot forgive you, that God does not love you, that he is not there for you because he is. He does love you. Find hope in Christ. God's design for marriage is not for it to end in divorce. And so may we as the church together, by the power of the Spirit and according to his word, help one another to live that out faithfully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we wrestle with a difficult passage like this because it impacts us personally for some more than others. We pray that your spirit would be moving in our hearts to open our hearts up to you, to see your goodness, your faithfulness. For those of us who are married, help us in our marriages Help us as a church to live life together and to hold fast to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.